Now, we're, as a church, committed to what is often called expository uh, study, the expository study of the Bible. And by that, what we mean is that we try to systematically study large sections of the Bible, usually books of the Bible, going through it you know, verse by verse, section by section. And sometimes when we're studying a book or section in this systematic way, what happens is we come upon a longer story or longer events and a longer teaching, and we need to break that up into various parts. We can't cover that bigger period in one Sunday. And, uh, and, but when we do that, we have to remember that when we come to the end of the story, it's all based on what the beginning of the story, you know, it's, it's based on the context of what was said before. And that's what we're looking at this morning. The whole of John chapter 5 is really one story. It starts with the healing, the responses of the people to that healing, and then Jesus teaching and explaining about that healing and about, about the claims that he made as a result of that. And, and when we look at this, the context is, is the big picture, the big claim in John chapter 5 is that Jesus claims to be God. He claims to be equal with God. And, and the people respond to that, and the teaching that we're seeing here is, an all, is all Jesus trying to establish his claims. We see that, that, uh, that being the central passage in verse 18 of John 5. Look what it says. And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, that's where it started, but not only was that, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So that's the big issue. This claim to be God, and, and we saw last week that, you know, that clearly Jesus is making this claim. Everyone who's here listening to him understands that claim. Now, one of the things that, that I will often get asked for those who are more skeptics of the Christian faith is they will, will look at something like this and they will say, well, why should we believe the claims of Jesus? Even if he claimed to be God, why should we believe him over the founders of, of other religions and their claims? Because all the founders of all the world religions made great claims about who they were, about the authority of their teaching. For example, you know, you could go to Islam and, and Muhammad claimed to be the last prophet of God, the ultimate definitive prophet from God. Or you could look at Mormonism and, and Joseph Smith claimed that an angel came and appeared to him and, and brought him to these golden plates and gave him the ability to interpret these golden plates that were the story of the Book of Mormon and about how you know, Jesus came to America. And, and we look at this and we say, why should we then believe the claims of Jesus over the claims of Muhammad or Joseph Smith or anyone else? And what we've got to realize is when we look at this passage, Jesus himself anticipates this question and he answers it right in the verses that we're going to be looking at this morning. The key in understanding what he's going to say is that he's interpreting it or answering it in terms of almost a legal defense. That he's not just saying, okay, here's what I say and believe it, but he tries to give evidence. He makes a legal argument. In fact, he uses language throughout this passage that, are, that is almost never used outside of a courtroom. It's, it's explicitly legal language. And most importantly, he refers to witnesses. So he says, okay, well, let me show you the witnesses that validate my claims. Now, if you understand that, that's the key to understanding verse 31. In verse 31, Jesus says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, if we don't understand the context... You can come to that and you can say, well, you know, well, Jesus himself is saying that we shouldn't believe him. Well, no, that's not at all what he's saying. What he's saying here is he's saying, not, you know, my testimony is false, you shouldn't believe me. He's saying in terms of evidence of a legal matter, if all I have is my own claims, 
If I'm standing by myself and making a claim, have no witnesses, have no evidence to back me up, then in the court of law, my, my testimony wouldn't be valid. And you see this evident in the way the New Living Translation translates the verse. It, it has that idea. If I were to testify on my own behalf, my testimony would not be valid. If that's all that I have, then, then it wouldn't be accepted in the court of law. Now, what he's doing here is that he's defending his claims, but he's using, uh, he's using a legal argument, and he's doing it on the basis of what people understood, the, the, you know, the, 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 uh, the evidence that would be required to establish the truthfulness or validity of any claim. You see, throughout the Bible, in numerous places, you have this idea that if there's a, a question of a claim or an accusation, that you just couldn't take one person's claim and, and give evidence or credence to it. You had to have it backed up by multiple witnesses. This is throughout the Bible, but one example is in Deuteronomy. If a single witness shall, uh, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection to any offense that he has committed, only on the evidence of two or, uh, witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. And so he understands this, and Jesus is kind of appealing to that and saying, okay, now, yeah, I know I'm making some great claims. And you're saying, well, how can he claim to be God? And I want to let you know that I'm going to now tell you why I can make this established. It's, it's not just that I'm up here making a claim. There's a lot of other people that have done that, and if all they do is make a claim on their own authority, then it's not valid. Well, I'm going to back mine up by, by witnesses. I'm going to make a legal argument, and that's what he does. Now, we're going to get into the witnesses in a moment. But before we do, what I want you to to almost back up and see this in the bigger context of what we realize, that throughout the Bible, the Bible's teaching something here about the nature of faith. There's there's something that the Bible teaches about faith, that it's it's biblical faith is always rooted in objective truth. You see, it's it's common amongst many people, if I talk to them about, about Christian faith or about any religious faith, there's a common belief that religious faith is something that is disconnected from objective truth. You know, you have history and science, and then you have religion, and, 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 and it's not only often disconnected, it may be even inconsistent with reason and logic. It's unrelated to objective truth. And so, therefore, people that believe, have this view of faith, you know, think, well, well, you know, you have a claim, and whether it's true or not, we can't know. It's not something that's evident, you know, provable. You know, people make different claims, and you believe this one, this I, I believe this one, and they're all equal because there's no evidence behind it. In fact, there are some people that will take it that will believe that you can believe something that you intellectually know to be false. So, so historically or scientifically, I know this is false, but spiritually I believe it to be true. And my spiritual belief makes it true. So therefore, in this view, you know, if a religious founder makes a claim, there is no, there's no need to test it, to evaluate it by evidence. You have to just believe it. And, and if you have enough faith, then your faith makes it true for you. Now, that's very, very common. That's an extremely common view of religious faith. And, and I will tell you that it may work for other religions because if you look at the other religions, generally, they have no evidence behind the claims of their founders. The founders make a claim, but then when you look a little more deeply, there's no evidence behind it. There's no objective truth to back up and substantiate the, you know, the truthfulness or validity of their claims. But that's not true of the Bible. And the Bible is incredibly clear that when it talks about faith, it's not just talking to say, okay, here's a claim and just believe it, you know, close your eyes and hope it's true. 
you know, you know it, it doesn't go against objective truth, it's actually consistent with objective truth. It calls us to be able to search it out. So here you have Jesus, he's saying, okay, well, I'm making a claim, and you're asking, well, let me give you evidence. Let, let's, let's, let's talk about it if it were an issue of, of a court of law, and I'll talk about witnesses. Jesus doesn't say, just believe me, have faith. What he says is, if all I have is my own claims, and there's nothing to back me up, then my testimony wouldn't be valid. He's saying actually the exact opposite. He's saying that that kind of faith is wrong. Now, this is something that, again, is taught throughout the Bible. Throughout the Bible, you consistently have the writers of the Bible rooting our faith in what we can prove and, and the evidence of, of what is historically and scientifically true. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about the fact that our faith is rooted in the resurrection. It is because Jesus Christ rose again, that we know that our faith is radically different than anything else, that, that it proves that Jesus Christ has a, authority over sin and death. And look what he says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, For I delivered unto you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised again on the third day according to the Scripture. Now here's this, the truth. But then he continues, this isn't just spiritual truth. It isn't just claims that we hope that is true. It's something that is, that is proven by evidence. It's consistent with objective truth. So what does he say? And that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. So it's not just something that we, it's not a spiritual truth, it's a historical fact. It's something that he appeared to all these people. And it wasn't just a spiritual experience. You had 500 people that saw him at one time. You know, these weren't people that were all having a you know, simultaneous um, vision or experience. No, this was something that was historical. And what does he say? You know, that 500, most of whom are still alive. If you doubt it, you can go ask some of them. Or you consider how Luke begins his gospel. He doesn't begin his gospel by saying, well, let me tell you a story about Jesus and the claims that he made. And no, what he does, look at how he begins he starts out, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished amongst us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word uh, and have had the word delivered to them to us. And he's saying, okay, a lot of people have tried to do this, and what I'm doing is now I'm going to the eyewitnesses. I'm going to the people that have seen it. I've talked to people. I've researched this. And he continues on. It seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. I've researched this. This is an orderly account. I've studied the, role, you know, the rules of, of history, and, and, and I'm writing something that is, that is yes, it makes great spiritual claims, but it's rooted in truth. And it's written based on the ideas that, that, if, that this holds up to all the rules of evidence of truth because our Christian faith is something that is rooted in truth. So now here's what we, re, what we often realize. When we talk about faith, faith is often presented as this, this leap. You know, you need to make this leap of faith, a leap that, that often we think goes against reason, goes against what we can know and what we can see. A, a leap into the darkness is the way it's often presented. That's often presented, but it's not that. The leap of faith isn't a leap into the darkness. It isn't a leap that goes against logic or against reason or against what is knowable. In fact, let me even illustrate this. There's, you know, some of you know periodically we'll do a clip from a movie, and 
And there's a few that are just like my all-time favorite. They illustrate a point so incredibly well. And, and there's one that illustrates this idea incredibly well. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's from the uh, movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And at this movie, Indiana Jones is looking for the Holy Grail or the, the cup used by Jesus at the Last Supper. And, and at one point, he's really close to the, that hiding place of the Grail, but he has to pass these last tests. And the last of the tests is the leap of faith. And in this leap, what happens, he comes to this giant chasm, you know, this chasm 50 feet that separate him from where he needs to go, and, and there's hundreds of feet below him in this great drop, and there's nothing there. And the whole idea of this leap of faith is, okay, do you have enough faith that in spite of the fact that the evidence tells you there's nothing there, that you can step out and believe? Because if you have enough faith, your faith will hold you up. Now, now here's how it's presented. I want you to see what present faith is presented at, and watch the whole clip because there's something at the very end that's really significant that we're going to come back to. Again, you look at that, that's the way that many people present faith to be, that it's this blind faith, everything says it's not there, but you just step out and you hope and you trust, and if you have enough faith, that it will hold you up. But that's not the biblical picture at all. That's not the faith that we're called to here. Now, on the other hand, you might say, well, doesn't the Bible call us to faith in what we cannot see? Well, yes, Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. There is a sense that faith calls us to believe in what we cannot see in the sense that it goes, calls us to go beyond our logic, beyond our reason. But here's the key. While it calls us to go beyond what we can see, it calls us to do so in a way that is consistent with what we can know and see. It's not, you know, turn your mind off and ignore, and, and if, some, if everybody says, says something's there, nothing's there, go ahead, go ahead. No, there are certain things that we can see, and we're called to see, have a logical faith that is consistent with what we can see, but that goes beyond it. There is a leap, but the leap of faith is something that is a step toward the light. 
It's toward what we can know. It's consistent with logic and reason. And that's what we see throughout, the, you know, throughout, throughout, throughout here. That's what Jesus is arguing. In fact, go, let's go back to the end of Jones clip. The very last scene is actually unintentionally teaching us what true faith is. It's not stepping out where there's nothing and hoping. It's picking up all the dirt and throwing it out there and seeing the outline of the invisible beam. You know, I can't prove God. I can't, you know, scientifically prove it. I can't, there's certain things that can I show you without a shadow of a doubt that these things are true? No. But what I can do is that I can pick up dirt and I can throw it out there and I can show you the outline of truth. And there's a place that you still have to step beyond, the, beyond your ability to see. You still need to take a leap that goes beyond logic. But it should be consistent with what we know to be true. Not inconsistent. And, 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 and that's what, what faith is. That's what he's calling us to here. We can't see the plank. We can see the outline of the plank. And on the other hand, if I take Mormonism and I throw it out there and it all falls to the ground, you'd be foolish to put your faith in something that all the evidence tells you isn't there. Or any other religions. They're not there. But what we have is we have the consistent with, with, with Scripture. I think it's not only, you know, I think, you know, Islam, any other religion. I think it's evolution. When you throw it out there, when you really study it, you throw it out there and the evidence isn't there. And people continue to try to believe it in spite of the evidence. The evidence proves it's wrong, so we just need to come up with a new version of the theory because we know it's true in spite of the fact that it keeps being proven wrong. Well, no, if it's proven wrong, then don't step out in faith in something that, that shows you there's no evidence. See, the evidence is there for Christianity. The, the evidence is there for the Bible. It's consistent with what we know. I tell you, if you want to look deeper, there are people that have studied this. Some of them even taking the language that Jesus talks about here, the language of, of a legal argument, and they make an argument for the evidence behind Christian faith. For example, cold Christianity is one. Uh, you know, Jesus on trial is another one, that these are, are books that, that argue for and demonstrate the evidence. The, you know, can it prove God unquestionably? No, but it picks up the dirt and it shows you how, how the outline of truth is there. And the question is, well, will you believe in a faith that is a step toward the light that is consistent with reason, but goes beyond your ability to know? Again, Jesus is using the legal terminology now, and he, based on this idea of faith, he says, okay, now let me establish witnesses that validate the validity of my claim. You know, he says, okay, yeah, my, if my testimony is to be legally valid, I'm going to provide witnesses. It's not that what he says isn't true, but it's not valid unless he has witnesses. And so he gives us four witnesses, and they're great witnesses. The first one is John the Baptist, verse 33. You sent, you sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I received is from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He is a burning, lamp, burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Now notice what he says, you know, that you sent to him, and his testimony isn't from man. Who was he? Well, look at what John said in the beginning of John chapter 1, or, or, or the gospel of John, John 1, about who John was. There was a man who was sent from God, a man who was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And that's what Jesus is saying here. But where did he come from? He wasn't from man, he was from God. And, and John specifically himself he claimed to be from God. When he, Jesus, John, in his own preaching, look what he said. 
He said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. I'm the one that Isaiah prophesied about. And what Jesus says here, and for a while you were willing to rejoice in his light. For a while you believed him. You, you approached him because you saw him as a prophet of God. You saw him as a valid witness until you, you, you didn't like his conclusion. You thought that he was of God, but then when you didn't like the person he was pointing to, you said, well, maybe we're not going to listen to him. So first of all, we have this prophecy, you know, that John is, a, is, is the first witness. Well, the second one is the miracles, the evidence of Jesus' miracles. Look again what he says in verse 36. But the, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. He says, okay, let me talk about the, the, you know, the miracles, the signs that I'm doing. And the, throughout the, the Gospels, repeatedly, the, the, the miracles are called signs. So they're not just Jesus is doing this and saying, oh, I see somebody sick. I'll, I think I'll make them feel better. I'll, and we saw even in this own case, he goes to this pool where there's dozens, if not hundreds of people that are sick, and he only heals one. Because it wasn't just about healing people. It was about teaching something about the nature of who he was and what he came to do. They were signs that pointed. They were signs that gave validity to his claims. That basically he's saying, I'm claiming to be God. Well, how do you know that if I'm God? Well, do, do I have control over nature? Do I have control over disease? Can I stop the wind? Can I raise the dead? You know, if, do I have control over creation? Because only the creator can have control over creation. A great place that Jesus makes this really explicit is in John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, there's a man that is brought to Jesus. And, and, uh, and Jesus, look what it says. He says, when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes you know, and the Pharisees, religious leaders, began to question him, saying, who is this that speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? You know, how dare you say that? Only God can forgive sins. And look at Jesus' response. Jesus perceived their thoughts, and he answered them, why do you question in your hearts what is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and walk. And basically, he's saying this whole idea of, the, of testimony. Well, okay, I agree with you. In saying this, I'm claiming to be God, but you're offended by that, so you want evidence. Well, what's easier to say? It's easier to say your sins are forgiven because nobody, there's, no, there's no question of testimony. But if I say rise up and walk, then if he doesn't get up and walk, you, you know that I don't have the power that I claim to have. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, so that you may know that I am who I claim I am, that I not only have the authority on earth, that therefore I'm God, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise up and pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And you see what he's saying here is that the, Bible, the Bible's teaching us. Jesus' miracles gave evidence. They were a testimony to the authority, to the validity of the claims of Jesus Christ. He says, okay, first of all, John the Baptist. Second of all, my miracles. And third of all, I have the testimony of God the Father. Verse 37, the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. You do not have his word abiding, and you, for you do not believe in the one whom he sent me. Now specifically, I think this is referring back to the very beginning of his ministry. When he's being baptized by John, and the heavens opened, and a spirit came, and God spoke from the heavens saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. I think that's what it's referring to. Now, we might look at that and say, well, that's not really the testimony of God. That's the testimony of the Bible saying what God said. 
Well, for us, that is, but for the people that were there, some of those people heard it, or they knew people that heard it. They knew that was an event, and they're saying, you know, basically, you're saying, well, we want a testimony. Well, God himself opened up heaven and spoke. That's a pretty good witness. You know, if you're going to have a witness, I, you know, I think God the Father is about as good as you can get. But yet, you don't believe. And he continues on, okay, but you have God the Father. And, and lastly, he says, you have the testimony of Scripture. I'm, I'm sorry, I think I've left this one out. It's the testimony of Scripture. Uh, verse uh, 39, you search the Scripture because you think that in them you have eternal life and that they bear witness about me. And he's saying, okay, now, if you, if, if you don't do that, you have the Bible. In the Bible, it's the Word of God. So in that, you have, the, you, know, the word, you have God himself speaking. You have all the prophets. You have all that. The testimony of the Bible. And the whole idea is that the whole of the Bible points to Jesus. You think that they have eternal life and that you're looking for the rules to keep. But it's not about the rules to keep. It was always pointing to an ultimate sacrifice that God would provide. It was pointing to the Messiah. And some people would say, well, you know, but you know, all the books have, you know, isn't that kind of self... Um, you know, self-proving, you know, that, that everybody has a book and say, well, the, look, my book shows that I'm true. Well, here's the difference in the Bible. See, when you take all these different religions, what they have is they have a book written by a man, and what he wrote is self-verifying because it's, he's the one testimony to himself, but he says, well, God gave me this book, and the book says that it's true. Well, the difference is, when you think of the Bible, it wasn't one man who sat down and wrote it. Jesus didn't write any of the Bible. In fact, it wasn't even one man, it wasn't just his followers. The Bible is 66 different books written over 2,000 years in three different languages, all saying the same message. And here you have Jesus saying, you have the book. It's not just my book that I'm saying that I'm true. No, this is something that God has written over the centuries, and you have all these prophecies that point to me. All these things prove the truthfulness. I am the prophesied one. I am who I say I am. That it's not just my claims, but there's evidence behind this. Now the question is, will you believe? But even in all that evidence, they still don't believe. And the reason is, is that for them and for us, ultimately we may often claim that we don't believe because we're not convinced or we have doubts. And, but what Jesus says is usually there's a deeper reason. There is an ultimate reason that people then and today ultimately reject Jesus Christ. And, and he appeals to the, all these witnesses. I've got all this evidence, but you don't believe why. Even God himself showed up. But you still don't want to believe because there's a, a root of your unbelief. There's a hidden source of the unbelief. And the unbelief is really just an excuse and look at how he exposes his hidden source. Let's go to verse 39 and 40. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And that it, it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me. Literally, when it says you refuse to come to me, literally it should be interpreted, you do not want to come to me. You do not want to come to me that you may have life. And what he's saying here is you have the whole testament points to me. God himself spoke to me. You see the miracles, but yet you continue to refuse. Why? Because you don't want to come to me. 
You see, I talk to people all the time that, again, are skeptics and argue against Christianity and against the truthfulness, and, and they all make all these arguments about, you know, everything from, you know, from evolution to history to this or that, and, and they give all these arguments. And you know what I find is pretty much every time, if I, if I engage them unable to answer those arguments, somebody will say, I don't believe for this reason. Okay, I'll answer that. Well, I don't believe for this reason, and I answer that. I don't believe for this reason. And they never come to the point to say, you know what, you got a good point. Maybe I need to look into this more deeply. Every time I give an answer, they go to another argument. And I think what we're finding out, what I find out is what Jesus is teaching here. They're really, it's not like they're saying, I really want to know, and I have these intellectual doubts. Most people, that's not the real issue. It's not because they have intellectual doubts. It's that I have intellectual doubts because I don't want to believe. I don't want there to be a God that I have to answer to. I want to be able to reject, and so therefore I find intellectual doubts which allowed me to hide behind them so I'm not admitting to myself that I'm, that I'm rejecting God. I just, I just don't want to believe in God because I don't believe he's true. And one of the things that I'm learning to ask, which is really helpful, is that, is that I'll talk to somebody, and after I ask a couple questions, I'll ask them, let me ask you a question. If I were able to prove to you convincingly the truthfulness of the Bible and Christianity, would you believe? Well, you haven't, no, I'm not just asking. I want you to think about this. Don't even give me the answer, just think about it. If I could prove to you convincingly the truthfulness of Christianity, would you believe? And in that question, I'm really trying to say, do you, is your, do you don't believe because you have doubts or because you don't want to believe? Because as I try to, to show you the evidence, you keep trying to hide, hide behind another argument because I don't think the problem is really the, the evidence. You see, what Jesus is exposing is something that is true then, that is true today, that is true for unbelievers, that is true even for us as believers. And that is that, that our desires shape our beliefs. That oftentimes we come and, and we may you know, talk about that we have this unbelief and here's this reason, and, but the real reason they didn't want to come to Jesus is they didn't want to believe in him. They didn't want to have a Messiah whom they had to find forgiveness of sins and submit to his lordship and his life and they didn't want to believe, and so what happened is that they chose to see things in a way that justified what they wanted to believe. And you know what? I, I run into this all the time. I run into it with believers. I, I can't, you know, many times I'll talk to someone, and, and they're talking about their marriage, and, and next thing you know, they're saying, well, you know, I, I know I'm married, but I met my soulmate, and this person's going to make me happy, and, and the thing is, is that what they want is they want to be able to justify, I've even talked to people, well, this was the person that I was supposed to marry, and I married the wrong person, and so God now is providing the person I'm supposed to marry. And what they're doing is they're justifying it. Okay, how do I somehow give this explanation? Because this is what I want, so how do I get God to agree with me? I'll talk to people, and they're, you know, they're, again, they're, they're not married, and they're, you know, well, but we're going to live together, and, you know, because if we live together, well, then we're going to have a better chance of succeeding in marriage, and so we want to test things out, and, and, and God wants us to do this because, and I'm sitting there and saying, well, number one, the evidence shows you that if you live together, you're more likely to get divorced. It's the worst thing you could do, and what you're trying to do is somehow get God to agree with you. That's what you want to do, so you're reinterpreting your beliefs to somehow connect with what you want, and it's wrong. I'll talk to people that are dealing with addictions, and they'll tell me, well, you know, I want to have the freedom to do this, and boy, I don't like to go to something like Haven Arrest or something. You know, they have rules, and, and I want to be able to have the freedom. And I'm sitting there, you have freedom? Are you kidding? I'm looking at this, and you have no freedom. You're totally addicted. You're controlled by this. You believe that's freedom? That's, that's slavery. 
and you might want to do this, it's destroying your life, it's destroying everything you value, and yet you think it's good? Because your desires are shaping your beliefs. And my friends, we have the danger of doing this as believers and unbelievers, and, and Jesus is confronting it. What happens is that I don't see, I, because I don't want to see it. And I feel like if I see it, I'm going to lose too much. If I see it, then I'm going to have to give up what I think is the core of life. And, and I miss what John or Jesus said in John 10. I have come that the thief comes to steal, and, to steal and to kill and destroy. That's all a lie. But I've come that they might have life and you might have it abundantly. That's the truth. You see, but if I don't want it to be the truth, then I will believe the lie and explain it to myself and justify it. And why is it that we believe the lie? Because it goes even a little deeper. It's ultimately because we want a Messiah that's more like us. We want a God that's more like us. Look at, again, Look. go, go to verse uh, 44. It says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another that, uh, and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Now you look at that and you say, well, what's that have to do? Here's what he's saying. You don't want Jesus because you want to be the center of your life. You want to be in control. You want to be the one that calls the shots. Now look at verse 43. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Now what in the world does that mean? How, you know, why would they? That doesn't seem to make sense until you understand here's what he's saying. They wanted a Messiah that would come in his own name. Why? They wanted a Messiah that was more like them. They wanted a Messiah that had his own agenda and who defended his own agenda because then it was like saying, okay, well, well he's affirming my, me. He's affirming me living for myself. You know, if he comes with his own agenda, I like that kind of, because he doesn't make me feel guilty. He doesn't show me where it's wrong. But Jesus is talking about that his agenda was the Father's, that he came to do the Father's will, that his, that his example is, is one of submission to the Lordship of God in his life. I don't like that kind of Messiah. Because it's calling me that to believe in him, to have a relationship with God, I've got to follow the example of God. And it's not about getting my will, it's not about doing what I want, it's about being more like Jesus, which is surrendering my will and doing what God wants for me. And ultimately believing that although I don't like that, even though there's a sense of, of surrender, that that's where I find life. It's even as Jesus said in Matthew 10, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Do you understand? That's the truth. It doesn't make sense. I know it doesn't make sense. But Jesus said, that's the truth. And the question is, will you believe in me? Will you believe in who I am? Even if it's uncomfortable, if it's, even if I'm not the God that you want, even if it's not a God that affirms who you are, but challenges who you are. Because ultimately, to have a relationship with God, I don't come to God, God doesn't conform to me. I come to God, and God is truth, and, and I need to conform to Him. And that's the invitation Jesus Christ gives us. He gives us each one this invitation to have a relationship with Him. That this, the Bible is the story of God pursuing us through Jesus Christ. But for us to have that relationship, we have to come to Him on His terms. A couple of closing questions. If you're not a believer, have you ever given an honest evaluation of the claims of Jesus Christ? You know, there might be some that you say, well, I'm a skeptic. I'm asking these questions. And have you ever really studied it? Have you ever looked at it? God invites you to a faith that doesn't close your eyes, but a, a faith that's a step toward the light. And if you haven't done that, is it, is it because you really don't believe? Or maybe you're avoiding to do that because you really don't want to believe? 
And for all of us, we have to ask, to what degree is your faith? Is your faith based on what you want to be true instead of what God says is true? And so often we struggle with God and his call upon our life because we want certain things to be true. But I want you to realize that there is a surrender. It's a surrender that says that ultimately God knows better than we do. And it's not a surrender that, that lets go of our life to embrace misery. It's, it's, it's a surrender that says, no, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. That's a lie. But if I surrender, I find that in Christ, I find a life and I find it abundantly. Thanks for joining us. If you have any questions about what we talked about, Jesus Christ, our church, or anything else, connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or by email. We'd love to hear from you.